Well, Father, it's with joy and anticipation that we reach for our Bibles now and we ask for clarity. We ask for humility and humbleness of heart that we would receive your word. Father, we pray that you will use this time to strengthen us, uh, to renew our minds and to strengthen our hearts and to grow us in our understanding of who we are in our walk before you. Strengthen your church today through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was um, some years ago, a couple years ago, that um, while we were homeschooling our son Jonathan during middle school years, that uh, I had the opportunity to be the bus driver for a field trip where we went to visit the Ford's Theater. And I imagine, thank you, I imagine that you are aware of the fact that uh, the Ford's Theater is where our great president, Abraham Lincoln, following the conclusion of the Civil War, went to uh, relax and to renew for an evening of entertainment. It was actually the twelfth time that he had gone to Ford's Theater to see the same production, Our American Cousin. That evening, the wicked man, John Wilkes Booth, came in and, Uh, Sneaking in behind him, as you well know, put a bullet into the back of his head, jumped off the balcony onto the stage and fled, assassinating President Abraham Lincoln. Well, I was not able to leave the bus due to the parking demands in downtown Washington, D.C., so it was uh, my job to find the parking place and... um, and to wait and to be ready to pull back in front. And while I was waiting and reading some other books that I had, Janet texted me. And she showed me a picture of the balcony right there. And I looked at my phone and just took a few minutes. And in the theater of my mind, I went there that night. What an incredible moment in our history. What a remarkable, horrible, terrible tragedy. President sitting there with his wife and guests and so forth, and you know the sequence well. I want you to, I want you to capture that concept for the first part of our message today. The theater of your mind, as we go and visit two other theater stages. Like the Ford Theater, they're very real. Like, like the assassination of our president that took place in the balcony and not on the stage, very real and very horrible events took place on these stages, these theaters, you might say. And this is very important for us to lay the groundwork for foundational understanding of the biblical doctrine of sin. So the first part of our message, we're going to visit two theaters, two stages. It's very important for you to know that they were historical moments. They really happened. And in the similar fashion of our inability to, in actuality, be there for the actual event, we can only imagine by looking at a picture, and we have pictures in Scripture, this will lay the foundation then for, for four fundamental realities about us because of what happened on these stages. 
So let's call it scene one and scene two, and then we'll get on with our message. Scene one, the stage, all of the glory of heaven. The characters involved, Almighty God at His throne, and then... Evidently, the greatest of all angels. We don't have too much detailed information about this stage and about this event. I believe it really happened. And I believe that the snippets of information that we are given, as it were, historical snapshots, give themselves to an understanding that are very important that lead us to our second scene or our second stage. Will you turn with me as we explore the scenes of scene one in Isaiah chapter 14. We only have different pictures from Scripture of what the throne room of heaven must be like. But one of the things that we understand that of the created beings that God has made, angels are very interesting. They come in different sizes and different shapes and they have different functions and they have different roles. And that's a whole other study of angelology and what the Bible says about the spirit world and specifically angels. But in reading Isaiah chapter 14, we have reference to, um, in, in, in a historical context and on the earth side of the scene, a primary reference to a king of Babylon who really lived. But when you read the text, many Bible students believe that it must be talking about a greater stage. It must be talking about another individual that, it, that surpasses the king of Babylon that is referenced here. Look what it says. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven. And then it gives some names of the, this player. O Daystar, son of dawn. Those are beautiful names, aren't they? How you are fallen from heaven, O Daystar, son of, the, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. We know we're not talking about God. We know that it's not imagery about God Himself. It's about a created being. It's about some kind of a created angelic being that evidently was as beautiful and as lofty as any angelic being could have ever been, this day star, son of dawn. But we recognize in verses 13 and 14 as the play moves on and be careful with my analogy because I believe it is a real event, not a pretend event. That this angel, this day star, this son of the morning, evidently bright and beautiful, looked towards the throne room and looked towards the throne of God Almighty and said five times inside himself, with a capacity that only created moral decision-making beings have the power to do. 
to look down inside themselves and to take a God-given desire and to turn it and to twist it and evidently based upon a form of selfishness and a form of pride that had never yet been seen or experienced in the history of created beings, this angel looked to the throne of God and said five times, I would be like God. Notice what happens. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. We'll stop there. Many Bible students believe that this is a reference to the time when Lucifer, the son of the morning, this bright star angel, looked at God and envied his position and thus was born into existence the reality of that which was contrary to the will of God and we call it sin. We have another picture in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Keep turning to the right in your Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And notice how the prophets wrote about this. This is in Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. And notice what it says. Again, a a scene. Primarily a historical reality on earth about the prince of Tyre, a king of Tyre. But again, it seems as you read it to be encompassing that which is greater than just a reference to this human king. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19. Look what it says. We'll begin with verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. That's Ezekiel. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now look at the, look at the word. The use of the language here. Notice the description. Surely this was more than an earthly king. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, so we know we're talking about a created being, They were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Isn't that interesting language? You were an anointed, that means a special positioned guardian cherub. That which was evidently given the the guardianship of the very throne of God. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. It just doesn't seem like it can just be an earthly king, does it? You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Now notice this line, it's very revealing. Until unrighteousness, your Bible might say iniquity or sin, was found. And where was it found? Within you. 
In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, so I brought fire out from our midst, your midst, it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. A prophetic statement included, I believe. It's interesting, isn't it? I recognize that exegetically it doesn't say in the passage that it is speaking specifically about Lucifer, son of the morning, who was cast out of heaven because of his pride over, evidently from this passage, his great beauty and his lofty position on the mountain of God. And it is interesting to note in verse 15, in the last part, that this unrighteousness was found inside of him. Scene 1. The mountain of God in heaven where Lucifer exposes a reality known only to moral decision-making beings and that is that from within them comes an ability to choose to do that which is contrary to the will of God known as sin. We entered into a sequence or series of messages on sin just last week, introducing it to us uh, through uh, a number of points, challenging ourselves as to why this is such an important subject. Today, I want to continue to build on that, and I want to establish a foundation of our biblical understanding that is very necessary for us to understand why sin is so heinous and horrible And this is also very important for us to understand the very history of mankind as well as our own beings, to understand ourselves. If you don't understand what we're going to talk about in today's message, then you don't understand what is really true about all people everywhere. And you will watch the news and you will see... Horrible, horrific, sinful people who will put bandanas over their faces and take guns and run through a beautiful mall in Nairobi, Kenya, and will slaughter innocent people thinking that they're doing good things. And you will watch the news and you will say, how can that happen? I don't understand it. I want you to know that our Bible clearly explains exactly why that happens. You also need to know that in the capacity of every human being, because of the existence of sin, and because every moral created being, so not animals, at ease, your pet gerbil doesn't sin. It does naughty things when it shouldn't. It's just like a parakeet on your head. But it's not sin. But the way God created angels and humans, it was not as robots, as some kind of automatic beings. 
But God built a morality inside of people and with the capacity to love and to honor and to follow after God and to be humble in obedience before a holy, almighty God is the capacity within to just choose to do evil. In a greater enveloping way over that, clearly God ordained that it should be such. But it is important, as we said last week, to know that God did not create sin. God created moral beings who have an ability to choose sin, and that capacity was allowed and ordained by God. At some level, we can't really understand why he would do it that way, but we do know that he did it for his purposes, and it is that he cannot make mistakes, and that everything he does is right, and somehow, in eternity future, we will have a greater understanding of his holiness, and of who he is as God, because of the existence of evil. Scene one is now set. We have this beautiful angel that looked deep within the recesses of its desires and chose to disobey God. That now sets the stage for us to move to scene two in our preparation for the latter part of our message, and that is the Garden of Eden, as you might have guessed. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Let me read a couple quotes while you turn to Genesis chapter 3 pertaining to what I just said about God and His ordaining evil. The first quote comes from my theology professor at Appalachian Bible College, a wonderful godly man named Dr. Joseph K. Pinter, still living um, well into his 80s, if not close to 90. And he wrote in our theology notes on the doctrine of sin, he wrote this statement that I thought was good. Listen, sin originates in the self-determined disobedience and revolt of the creature against the express commandment or known will of God. Did you get that? One more time. Sin originates in the self-determined disobedience and revolt of the creature against the express commandment or known will of God. Where does sin come from? Sin comes from an ability that God gave moral decision-making creatures from within themselves to simply turn against his known will. Another theology text by a man named Lewis Ferry Schaefer in his systematic theology wrote this. Listen closely. I know we're a little bit technical now. In its fundamental character, sin is a restless unwillingness on the part of the creature to abide in the sphere of limitation in which the Creator, guided by infinite wisdom, has placed him. Let me read that again. Schaefer says in his systematic theology that the origin of sin is partly this. It is in its fundamental character, sin is a restless unwillingness on the part of the creature 
to abide in the sphere of limitation in which the Creator, guided by infinite wisdom, has placed him. That beautifully sets the stage for Genesis chapter 3. We have God in his infinite wisdom, the Creator, placing the creature inside the sphere of what is his will and plan of blessing for them. We're now going to see man, much like Lucifer the high angel, determined to step outside of the severe of God's blessing and self-determined to disobey. Hence, the existence of sin in the human race. Let's read the account. You know it well. We call this the fatal attraction, this moment when the first woman, Eve, decided, out of deception that she knew more than her Creator. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I believe that this serpent, and the Bible is actually quite clear on this, Um, one particular passage is in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where it says, that ancient serpent who is called the devil. That ancient serpent who is called the devil. Revelation 12, 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, the Apostle Paul worried that the Corinthian believers would be drawn away from their sincere and pure devotion to Christ in the very same way that, that the serpent or Satan lured away and deceived Eve in the garden. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. We don't know for sure whether he said that or not. She, said, she thought he said it. Lest you die. He did say that. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig tree leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Hardly a more sad verse can be found in Scripture than that. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? A rhetorical question. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God condemned the serpent to crawl on his belly, the woman to bear children in pain, and the man to make a living by the sweat of his brow. And he expels them 
from the garden. Let's pick it up at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. There is now a conscience. There is now an awareness that did not manifest itself earlier. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. He is now outside of the sphere of God's intended plan and blessing by his own choice and the fruit of those choices. No pun intended. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We don't know much about this fruit. It's unlikely that it was an apple. It is often portrayed, as it is this morning on the screen, as an apple. And uh, But it was a fruit. Whether it was a specific fruit that was indeed the fruit of, the, of knowledge of good and evil, um, there was significance to it in that it was the tree of choice. It was the decision-making point. And God identified a tree with some kind of fruit on it, and He said, do not eat. It's possible that it was a normal fruit, but that that tree with its fruit was isolated and the implication and ramification was is that this is the boundary. To enter in and to take this fruit and to eat it is to remove yourself from the sphere of blessing. It is to look at God and say, I know better than you. I want what you don't want for me. I don't trust that you have my best interest in mind. I can see with my eyes and I can tell and I'm hearing in my ears from the serpent that this will only be a good thing. And so from within the depths of their moral decision-making character and and in, in this pool of ability to choose right and wrong springs a sinful choice. It's possible that because God chose to guard then that gate to Eden and He kept them out that they would not eat of it, that this tree of life was some kind of a fruit that, that was intended for the human to be able to eat, to live forever. There's some mystery around this story. Uh, let me put a parenthesis in our message right now, though, and let me say to you that it is very important at this point to understand that what we're talking about is a historical account with real people. It was not just a spiritual, mythological story. Part of the reason that we believe that is that when you read Genesis 1 through 11, you will find that it, can, that it regularly updates the reader on the genealogical account and the sequestration sequence of generations. And you will notice that it speaks of the generations of Adam and his sons in exactly the same way that it does in the sequence of generations with Abraham and his sons and Jacob. And there's no break. And it is clear that the reader, intent, that the writer, the author, intends, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the reader to understand this as real history, real people who really lived, who had real kids. The second reason why this is important to take as a historical account, and by the way, this is hugely under fire today by liberal, even liberal evangelical, quote-unquote, scholars and Bible students, whether Adam's really real or not, whether he really lived, or was he just a, 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 some kind of mythological character or a spiritual representation. Listen, if Adam wasn't a real man, then as we're going to see later on in our message, that in the same way you have to treat you have to treat the second Adam the same way. So if Adam wasn't real, then Jesus wasn't real. 
Because Paul is going to handle them both equally. Through one, sin enters. Through the other, life enters. And freedom from sin, and they're equal. And so I want to just emphasize the fact that we're dealing with a real person on a real stage in a real-life moment. Notice that what we have here briefly, before we move then to the balance of our message, that in the Garden of Eden we have here the serpent influencing Eve to redefine the Word of God. To redefine the Word of God. He questions, did God really say? Are you sure that that's what God said? Don't you think He might have meant this? And so the redefining of what God had said clearly. It is important to note that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14, that it is clear, as well as in 2 Corinthians 11, as I referenced before, as in it states in this passage, that Eve was evidently, clearly, unequivocally deceived. She really was fooled. We could surmise why that was. Why was there a naivety in Eve that Adam didn't have? Adam had lived a little bit longer. Had Adam not communicated effectively to her? Was Adam off somewhere else? She was alone. She wasn't aware of these circumstances. Was it not even a surprise to her that a serpent could speak? What is it? There was evidently a naivety and and an innocence by which Eve, through the words, the beguiling of the serpent, entered in and made a choice. She then goes to her husband, Adam, and you need to understand that this is the point of the play here in this scene. That when Eve takes the fruit, eats it, and gives it to her husband, that when Adam takes his hand and reaches out for that fruit from his wife, and he partakes, that at that point he did it with a full knowledge and a complete understanding that it was outside the will and the plan and the blessing of God, and he had disobeyed. He is the one who is held responsible in that sense. So you have the redefining of the Word of God. You now have the realigning of the will of God. The realigning of the will of God. The serpent says to the woman, verse 4, You shall not surely die. In fact, you shall live forever. In fact, God is withholding His hand. In fact, you really want to do this because if you don't, you're going to miss out on just the best good time right now. And you have this realignment of the will of God. God says, do it this way, do it my way, do it in my time. Don't do that. Do this. Live here. And isn't it interesting that evidently with literally thousands of square miles of garden, of beautiful tropical utopia, as we can imagine it in our minds, they find themselves next to the one tree that is forbidden. Isn't that just like us? So you have this redefining of the Word of God, you have the realigning of the will of God, and you have the clear rebellion against the way of God or the plan of God. Adam in verse 6, looks what happens. And uh, so she took of its fruit, verse 6, and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so immediately you have clicked off in front of you. You have an immediate sensitivity and a consciousness to sin. You have shame. You have guilt described. You have uh, lying. You have deception. You have the passing of shifting of blame. Adam even says right to God, oh, it wasn't me, it was her. Hi, man, it wasn't me. It was this woman. 
dirty, rotten scoundrel. He absolutely understood that she was naive and he understood that he was responsible and that he had failed. And what a moment that is, isn't it? When it says that God came to walk in the cool of the evening and you get the idea that this was a regular practice where God himself would come and visit Adam and Eve in the garden. You, you just can't imagine anything more wonderful. And he's hunkered down behind a bush telling Eve to be quiet. Here comes God. Let's see if he can, we can hide on God. What a shame. What a disgrace. Scene one... The throne room, the mountain of God, where we have evidently a description of this high-ranking angel deciding to disobey, being expelled from heaven. He evidently then finds himself in scene two, disguising himself as a serpent, or in some form is this serpent, which we know has been altered because of the curse, It may have had legs or wings before that. It was cursed to crawl on its belly in the dirt. So there was change. The anatomy was changed. And from scene one, we move to scene two, and we have the demonic influence, the satanic influence of sin, influencing the man to sin. Now, here's where you need to understand something. You need to understand that the story doesn't stop there. You need to understand that when Adam and Eve realigned themselves from the will of God and, and redefined the word of God and rebelled against the way of God, that there were ramifications that now clicked into existence in the mind of God and in the reality of the physical universe of humankind that has altered the history and the course of mankind ever since. So we've seen scene one, we've seen scene two. Now we're going to look in our Bibles and do a little bit of Bible study. And I want you to see with some level of understanding that there are at least four. There's like like 49, but I would like to see four things that happened here that was the aftermath. It was the reality of the decision-making of Adam and that he willfully sinned. And the first thing I want you to see that the Bible says is that that now what has entered the human race is a concept called, number one of four things, total depravity. Total depravity. Depravity means a pervertedness or a crookedness. If, If something is depraved, it is no longer right. It is not in its rightful place. The idea in the language, in the word of the word depravity, is that it it does not stand the test. Not standing the test. So depravity means that mankind fails God's test. At some level, the fruit in the garden was a test. It was a test of man's obedience. Now we're entering into a point of theology that a lot of people just say bah humbug about. They don't believe it, and they believe that mankind is innately and basically good. I'm telling you that the Bible is going to teach us that because of what Adam did after Eve handed him the fruit, and he disobeyed and realigns himself outside the will of God, that that carried on ramifications for all of us to this day, until the ultimate redemption and we're in the presence of God. And the first thing is that, that there is this total depravity. In the, um, in the Old Testament, there are a couple of verses that support this. Let me read a couple of them. Isaiah 64, 6 says, 
We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's the verse that in other translations, in King James and NIV, is known as filthy rags. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah 53, 6 says that all we like sheep have gone astray. How have all of us gone astray? Adam's one that sinned. But the Bible is going to build a case now that when Adam sinned, everybody sinned. And as a result, we have this matter of total depravity. That we have all failed God's test. None of us have stood up under God's test. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 14 quickly, please. Psalm 14. Let me show you a couple more verses on the depravity of mankind, and then we must quickly end up in Paul's teaching in Romans uh, chapter 5, where we read earlier so that we understand exactly why it is the way it is. This is Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Look what it says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Look what he says. The psalmist says, There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And his conclusion is they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Now to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 3, we have that great verse, a part of the, what we know as the Romans road, in Romans 3, where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did you hear that? Hear it with new ears, coming off the scene too, that in Adam all die. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everyone. Now, Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, goes right to the point of total depravity. Notice what he says. Let's begin with verse 12. We've read the first 11 verses, which are wonderful realities about being justified by faith and having peace with God. And he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Okay, before Moses wrote down the law, Paul is arguing that even before people had the Ten Commandments, which was many generations into the human race, that yet, even though there was no law, yet, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, this is not simple. This is not a simple conversation necessarily, but I want your eyes to go back up to verse 12, and I want you to understand what Paul is teaching about the depravity of mankind. Look what he says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Let's just stop there. You need to know that Paul is not talking about a specific sin. He's not talking about some, some kind of a specific sin. He is saying there that at this point, sin as a concept, sin in reality, sin at large, now exists in the universe at the moment that Adam chose to eat the forbidden fruit. And so sin comes into the world through this one man, and then as a result of that, what happens? Sin always results in death. And death through sin. 
So what do we mean by total depravity? The first thing we mean by total depravity is that it is universal. When Paul says here in 5.12 that sin entered into the world, understand that to be the universal world. So no matter where you trek into the jungles of the Amazon, up to the North Pole, into a hut with an igloo with Eskimos, wherever you go to the deepest crook or cranny from the inner cities to the mountaintops, wherever you go in the world, universally, the world is now characterized by sinfulness and all people everywhere who are ever born were born into sin. The second thing that it means is that it's a complete sinfulness. Every sin, every part of me is permeated in my entire being as sinful. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that every person commits every form of sin that is possible. We all know that. But it does mean that every person is capable of performing or conducting themselves in a way that could do any kind of sin. So be careful with this expression. Do not hear yourself say, I could never do that. That is not good doctrine. That is not accurate. The, 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 the total depravity of mankind that exists universally around the world, that completely permeates every part of our being, that there is none righteous, no, not one, and that all of my righteousness is now as filthy rags. It's not as though I do every single filthy sin that I could do, but I am capable, and everybody is capable of getting to a place in their sinfulness and in their depravity where they can do heinous, horrible, ugly things. There's nothing about any of us that is holy or righteous. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Let's just do number two, and with this we'll wrap up. The second thing that you need to see out of this is an individual responsibility. And this is a really interesting thing. We're going to just touch on it, and we'll pick up here next week. But listen to this. Okay, so when Adam sinned, Paul is now teaching in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that at this point, sin enters the world, and all are guilty of sin. And we call this total depravity. The second thing you need to know that what Paul is teaching here in 5.12, that when all sinned, he uses the word all to identify individual responsibility. What this is teaching, the Paul is teaching, listen, this is an important church word. He is teaching teaching the imputation of Adam's sin. Here's the word, imputation of Adam's sin. We're used to talking about it, about our great salvation in Christ, where, where the righteousness of Christ is what? Is imputed on our behalf, given over to us, passed on, and we inherit a righteousness from Christ that was not our own, that gives us a standing in the presence of a holy God, so that if we were to die today, or if we get out of church and we find that precious Miss Eleanor has slipped into eternity, into her home in heaven, that when the moment she breathes her last breath and she stands in the presence of a holy God, she will stand there by no defense of our own. It will not hold great weight with God at all that she taught Sunday school faithfully, whether anybody showed up or not at Bakerton Church of God for 30 years. But the fact is that she's been to the cross, that she has bowed her head before a holy God, that she's the one who has admitted her total depravity and her sinfulness before a holy God and admitted this and by faith received the finished substitutionary work of Jesus Christ and it was imputed to her behalf 
from Christ to her this righteousness that was not her own, so that the minute she breathes her last, she will stand in the presence of a holy God, and there will not be her record that she stands there with. It will be the record of Jesus Christ imputed to her. In a similar way, that word is used here, the concept is used here, is that Adam's sin has been imputed to us. Notice what it says. This individual responsibility. It says in 5.12, through one man, that death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because, look at the next phrase, because all sinned. Now, we're going to pick this up next week here and and develop it a little bit more clearly, hopefully. But you need to understand that when Paul is teaching here that in this total depravity, that all sinned, that in the mind of God, now listen to me, that in the mind of God, that when Adam sinned, it was the same thing as every human being that will ever live again sinned at that moment. Because Adam's sin was imputed to us, and we are equally guilty with Adam. Folks, we have a huge problem. We have a huge problem. We have a holy God who has clearly directed and given His will, and His will is that we live holy lives, and we have voluntarily and willingly, out of the moral-based decision-making ability that we have, decided to realign ourselves with what we think is best, not what God thinks, and we are sinful, and in Adam we are totally depraved, and we have Adam's sin imputed upon us, and it was the same thing as if I were there eating the fruit with full knowledge that I sinned against God. That's a little hard to understand, but that's exactly what Paul's teaching here. So we have a huge problem, but praise be to God, he solved our problem. And the solution to the problem is this. I do not any longer have to remain in my sinful state. I no longer have to dwell inside of my total depravity and my imputed sin from Adam. But as I just talked about Miss Eleanor, we can go to the cross and there it was that the sacrifice was made where Jesus Christ's blood flowed. The sacrifice of all sacrifices because sin demands death. Sin demands death. Sin always brings death. And so Jesus Christ took death upon himself and he took sin upon himself. He who knew no sin so that totally depraved sinful people who, as it were, ate the forbidden fruit in person, could come to the cross and on Jesus Christ's behalf have all of that wiped off their slate so that there's no record anywhere, so that God commendeth his love toward us in this, even while we were yet sinners, totally depraved sinners, we could enter into newness of life in Christ. Is your problem solved? We have a problem. But we have a great problem solver, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, we're going to have to pick this up next week. Let's bow in prayer. And so, Father, we thank you so much for the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes away all sin. We thank you for that judicial declaration where we stand justified declared righteous in your presence on behalf of Christ, only by grace through faith. Father, would you stir our hearts, would you open our minds to these things that we would understand the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of our condition and why we do what we do. Father, thank you for solving our problem through the great problem solver, our Lord Jesus. 
It's in His name that we've gathered. In His name we pray. Grateful for this great salvation. Convict hearts and open blind eyes, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.